Have you ever heard somebody say, that was really good worship today? Have you heard? And maybe you said it. Have you said it? Anybody? Come on. I, I, I've said it. You know, worship is a word that can get us into trouble. And uh, I've been particularly guilty of that one. We walk away from a church service and we say, well, that was really good, wasn't it? I loved that. And, well, that was bad. That was really bad. We've got to talk to so-and-so about such-and-such, right? But the question is a good one, I think. What makes good worship? Have you ever asked yourself the question seriously? What makes good worship? Is it when the music is what you like? Is it when the sermon is good? Is it when the service goes like you expected it would go? Or maybe it didn't go like you expected, and that's good. What makes good worship? I want to explore that with you this morning, not based on how we would answer, but on the pages of Scripture. And so what I want to do is I want to show uh, us today that good worship happens when we, through the Holy Spirit, can participate in what God has done in Christ. Okay, let me say it again. Good worship is actually when we can participate in what God has done through Christ. So if you will open your Bibles, if you want to follow along, to Ephesians 1. This is page 976. And while you turn there, let me give you a little bit of background on where we've been. For the past couple of weeks, we have been exploring this idea of belonging. And as you hopefully know, we have divided all the ministries in the church into four areas. Worship, belonging, mercy, and mission. And this really is just to help us organize what it is that we do and help all of us get involved. Very simple. And so belonging is a foundational part of that entire process because belonging provides a foundation from which we can worship rightly, from which we can extend ourselves in acts of mercy and go on mission. Belonging is really, really key, really important. So we've discussed that at length the past few weeks. We've been given a place at God's table. He's called us his own. But where does worship come in? That's not an easy question to answer, actually. For as long as I can remember, I've been trying to answer it. From a very young age, I knew that I wanted to lead worship. but I didn't really know what that meant. So I've been asking this question, what is worship and how do I worship rightly? Have you ever asked yourself that question? How do I worship the right way? Because I want to do it the right way. Well, when you ask a question like that, you have to do something pretty quick. Read books, study. Because what you're going to find is that a lot more people I've spent a lot more time trying to answer the same question, and they're way smarter than you. <laughs> and if they can't answer it as easily as you thought, even though they're really smart, you start to realize this is a pretty big question. What is worship? Well, let me give you a couple definitions that might help. Robert Weber, theologian, author, founder of the school down the road here, he says that worship does God's story. Worship does God's story. So basically God's story, the creation of the world, the fall into sin, the incarnation of Christ to save us, and then the recreation in the new kingdom, that's God's story. So whenever we do that through 
prayers, through songs, through how we live, we're worshiping. That's worship. When we do God's story, that's a good definition. Another one is from David Peterson, uh, another writer, a theologian. He says that worship is an engagement with God on the terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. In other words, we don't get to decide how this goes. He does. And he makes it possible. I I can't do it right enough to worship rightly. So God makes it possible. Now, what we have here is a really big issue. When I started to realize it doesn't really matter how I want to worship. It matters more how God wants me to worship. There's a lot of varying definitions. In fact, you might have your own, like we talked about earlier. So let's look at our text and see how God wants us to worship, okay? Now, you might not think immediately that this is a worship text, but I think it is. So let's take a look at it together. Before we do that, though, one side note, okay? Worship, I would call worship, I would define it as having two dimensions, you want to use kind of Waffle House terminology, you have worship gathered and worship scattered. Okay, you have, you have worship corporate, which is what we're doing right now. We all gathered in here and we came and it's wonderful, right? But worship is not only a church service. We walk out of these doors, we go to homes and jobs and all of our hearts have the same capacity to overflow in love and thanksgiving to someone or something. That's worship. We're always worshiping something. And so what I want you to think about as we're talking today, think about both of those things. When I use the word worship, try not to, say, try not to just think about, he's talking about church, and just stop, because I work a real job. Okay? But I'm not just talking about church. I'm not just talking about your private devotional life either. Okay? Worship as a whole, both corporate and private. All right, so finally, let's get to Ephesians. Chapter 1, verse 3, Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So did you see that definition we gave earlier? What has God done through Christ that we share in? It affects our sense of belonging, and it affects our worship. Have you thought about the two basic questions that people ask themselves across their life? Where do I belong? Where do I fit? And what's my purpose? Those are answered here in the gospel. God's given you a place to belong in his family. And he's given you a purpose to live for, what Paul would call the praise of his glorious grace. So this is really good news. And in this text, I see three different things that affect worship. Okay, Three different foundational principles that would form us as worshipers. And so let's explore those together. I'm going to give them all to you first, and then we'll walk through them one by one, okay? So, number one, 
Worship is objective before it's subjective. Worship is objective before subjective. Number two, worship is rooted in identity that informs action. It's rooted in identity that informs action. And number three, worship begins and ends with God. So let's look at all these one by one. Ready? Yes? So number one, worship is objective before it's subjective. I think as a young Christian, I spent a lot of time leaving a worship service or after my morning devotions thinking, why was that so bad? It was just terrible. Or on the other side, why was it? That was great. That was the best service ever. But the thing that I was evaluating that by was my experience, my feelings about it. And then it hit me one day, you mean I can have a bad experience in worship and it could still be good? I think so, yes. Here's why. God, through Jesus, makes good worship possible. And so this happens outside of me, which would lead me to determine that good worship is first outside of me before it's inside of me. The greatest worship event that ever took place happened outside of my lifetime and outside of my experience. And that tells me something about how I should approach my experience in worship. Okay, so worship outside of myself in a historical event makes its way into my experience and not the other way around. Not the other way around. So what we have, that order really matters. God is pleased with me because he's pleased with Jesus. If you walk away from a, a worship service and you think, man, that was so bad, I don't think I even got through to God. The good news is Jesus has already gotten through to God. So, Worship is first objective before it's subjective. Worship is a celebration of real events that happen in real time to real people. But outside of my lifetime, I had this professor <clears throat> in college, uh, a history professor, and he would always, he was so animated. And so he'd get on this big thing and he'd say, Newsflash, gang, you weren't there for that. You know, he would say these really big statements. <laughs> but as a professor of history, he knew it still mattered. For our lives today. It's worth looking at. So worship is objectively based in Christ's work to accomplish redemption, but God invites my experience into his story. The objective past comes into my present experience and helps me look forward to a hopeful future. This is how worship transcends time. So first it's outside of me, then it's inside of me. This is really important because we so often fall into that trap, don't we? We evaluate based on how we experienced it. Instead of asking the question, was worship good for me? Maybe a more helpful question is, did I participate in what God has already done through Christ in worship? Okay, so it's objective first, then subjective. That's really important. We see this in what Paul writes. Second point, second foundational truth. Worship is rooted in identity that informs our action. Identity that informs our action. 
when I first began to lead worship and try to follow God, I was a mess. I was a really big mess internally. Insecurity, doubt, fear, secrets that I didn't want anybody to see. Is it any wonder that my worship experiences were like this all over the map? I had, I had no firm footing to stand on. I had no ground. Your identity in Christ is reflected in how you worship. So when identity is insecure, in other words, if I don't know that God accepts me or loves me, it has everything to do with how I experience him in worship. I can illustrate this with marriage. A lot of us are married in here. When, have you noticed that if the foundational core, okay, your marriage is based in unity, love, acceptance. That's foundational. And if that's being threatened in some way, like through a fight or some other issue, have you noticed how the little actions are perceived differently? Like how you open the door or close the door. <laughs> or the fact that you didn't close the door. It's perceived differently. Now, the other side of it, if that core is strong and you're having good communication and connection, those little things don't really seem to matter as much. So in worship, our identity, rooted in what Christ has done, works its way out into our action. If you look at the text, Paul writes that in verse 5, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. We've been made holy and blameless. We've been adopted as his sons and daughters. That sounds like a new identity. There's this phrase, everywhere I go, there I am. Have you heard that? Everywhere I go, there I am. Usually that's not good because I'm my biggest problem, right? So I bring with me all my issues, all my baggage, all, all it goes with me. I can't check my identity at the door. But this is good news for us in worship. Because when we've been given a new identity as God's sons and daughters, we can worship freely. Our worship action gets informed by that. If you take away identity and you just have worship, whether that's here in a service or at home, what you have is human effort trying to earn God's approval. Acceptance means I can, I can love and worship God freely. If I have no acceptance, I have only shame, and I want to run away and hide. And I'm trying to overcome all of that through the things that I do. It just doesn't work. You remember the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament, the story of the, the people who said, yeah, we're pretty good. We can build stuff. We're going to build a tower so tall, it's going to reach to heaven. That did not end well for them. Our worship is not supposed to be Tower of Babel Part 2, where we work ourselves up. No, God changes us from the inside out. So if you want more meaningful worship, maybe instead of blaming the band or the worship leader or the preacher, maybe ask yourself, how firmly is my identity rooted in Christ? Do I know he loves me? Am I secure in that? Because it's going to affect how I in, engage with him. So identity informs action. 
The third foundational truth is worship begins and ends with God. Worship begins and ends with God. Have you ever felt like you had to kind of work yourself up to worship? I mean, yeah, I have. I mean, come on, just, you can do it. Just try really hard. Or have you ever felt discouraged because you have nothing to offer to God? Been there too. Good news is God's already offered everything in worship. Worship begins and ends with God. When I realize that God has initiated this exchange, this engagement with God comes first from him to me. I'm freed up. I don't have to work trying to get there to try and impress God as if I could. No. He initiates. I respond. The beautiful news of the gospel is that when I say, I just can't, God says, I already have. And what he's done in Christ opens up a pathway, opens up a way for us to engage with him. But it doesn't end there. I mean, it's not a one-way street. I don't work myself to try to get to God and reach and reach and reach. And it's not God just sending out this message in a bottle saying, well, I hope they get it down there. Whatever. No, this is a, there's a cyclical process that's happening. God initiates something and invites me to respond. Like Paul writes here, to the praise of his glorious grace, we are meant to live lives that would result in his glory so that he might be seen as the one who is wise beyond all wisdom. That he had the best plan of any other plan. That he could take me, somebody who couldn't figure it out, and make something valuable, something that gives him glory. So worship begins and ends with God. You know, that's really our desire in all this. I mean, Mike would agree with me that the whole point of these areas of mercy and mission and belonging and worship, it's not so we can have everybody in the ministry and then say, well, we are pretty awesome as pastors. No, it's, it comes from a deep belief that God has a place to belong for people who are lost. People have no home and no hope. They don't know what to do with their lives. But in Christ, we have a home. And in Christ, we have a purpose. We don't have to beat our head against the wall thinking, what am I supposed to do with my life? Right here. Live a life to the praise of his glorious grace in everything you do. That's the heart of God for you and for me. And that's what we're trying to do. God has done a work to restore us outside of ourselves. He's made us holy and blameless, something we could never do. He changed our identity. And he invites us to share in his story, to share in this invitation to return to him praise and glory, the greatest purpose that we, we could ever live for. So the question for us is, how are we going to respond? How are we going to respond to what God has done in Christ? Am I going to try to outdo him, which is what I do when I try to make my own way to God? No, no, no. All the thing, all the thing you did with Jesus, I could do better. Are we going to try to work ourselves up 
Are we going to simply say, God, I want to join with you. I want to participate with what you have done in Christ. I want to close with a, a prayer that was written by Charles Wesley. It's actually a text of a hymn. And I heard a preacher use this as an illustration in a sermon many years ago. And it has become for me one of those prayers you go back to in difficult seasons or just from time to time. I love this prayer because it summarizes this process that God has done something in my heart. What he would say, he's kindled a fire of love for him. And the prayer is asking God to let that fire burn, to let it be the motivation for everything I do, and to return to God in glory with my life. This has been my prayer for many years, and I would just invite you to make it your own. We've put it on the screens. You can follow along, or you can just listen. Let's pray this together, just asking God by the Spirit to stir our hearts with love for him. Let's pray. O thou who camest from above, the pure celestial fire to impart, kindle the flame of sacred love on the mean altar of my heart. And there let it for thy glory burn with inextinguishable blaze and trembling to its source return in humble prayer and fervent praise. Jesus, confirm my heart's desire to work and speak and think for thee. But still let me guard the holy fire and still stir up thy gift in me. Ready for all thy perfect will, my acts of faith and love repeat. Until death, thy endless mercies seal and make my sacrifice 